Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 24th, 2017. Coming up, we'll hear about the secret life of fat, the science behind the body's least understood organ, and what it means to you. This is How on Earth. I'm Shelley Schlender. When Sylvia Terra had more trouble fitting into her skinny jeans than her friends, she decided to learn more about just why she was prone to being fat and what she could do about it. Terra brings an impressive background to her investigation. She holds a Ph.D. in biochemistry from the University of California at San Diego and an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. She was a consultant with McKinsey & Company and has worked at the world's largest biotechnology companies. And like most American women, she wanted to be skinnier. She writes about what she's learned in her book, The Secret Life of Fat, the science behind the body's least understood organ and what it means for you. Now here's Sylvia Terra. I struggled with fat my whole life, really. I've always gained weight much easier than people around me. I've seen people eat whatever they want uh, and not gain weight, and that was never me. I had to work a lot harder at it. I went on a number of different diets. I would lose some. It would easily come back, and sometimes I could even gain weight on a diet, depending on what it was. And I had this experience so many times that I thought, I am going to understand everything about fat, particularly my fat, which was very stubborn fat. You're a biochemist, but you're also a woman in today's society. And that must have been rather maddening because in our society, people are supposed to be skinny. However, in other societies and other times, your easier ability to gain some weight would have been something that other people wanted more than anything else. Yeah, that's right. I mean, fat wasn't always hated. It was really loved. Um, Even in America, after the Civil War, people loved fat. It was a status symbol because there was, you know, poverty and destruction, food was hard to come by, and fat really became something people wanted. And they would even pad themselves to look heavier. There was advice columns in newspapers on how to gain weight. And all of that changed around the turn of the century, uh, going into the 1900s, when the economy improved and food was more plentiful. People started gaining some weight, and then leaders started getting worried. There was just caution about, for the military, we need strong bodies. For businesses, we need agile bodies. And religious leaders even commented on the piety of being thin. And so it became this echo chamber, and people started worrying about their fat. And then dieting started. And people, you know, of course, when you have a public wanting something and being afraid of their fat, who comes in but business to help you sell gimmicks and have them make a profit off of it? And that's just, it's continued on to today where we spend $60 billion a year trying to fight fat, but we don't really understand fat. I mean, to spend $60 billion a year, which is more than we spend, Homeland Security spends on the war on terror, and yet we have this enemy that just comes back all the time. You're saying that we consider fat to be an enemy, and yet even today there are cultures where if somebody's put on body fat, that person is the most beautiful person in the room. We think about some of the most popular personalities in the world. Who are they? The Kardashian sisters. Some of them are not skinny. 
you know, maybe it's changing. Even Jennifer Lawrence has become, you know, is considered looking healthy, if you will. Um, it's almost euphemistic in that in that way. But, you know, we're accepting it more and more. People have it than other than ever. So I think it's becoming part of, you know, the regular mainstream now. It's still, I think, this quest to be thin is still there. I still think we spend a lot and we obsess a lot about it. Um, you know, women in particular, I'm, I'm hoping to turn some around because we are designed to have more fat. And I actually researched this for a while and I had to have the answer because I'm, I'm married to somebody, a man who can eat whatever he wants pretty much and not gain weight. And I had to understand why that was so. You have done a lot of research as a biochemist into this topic and looked at it from many directions. But I want to get back to you saying that fat is the enemy. Do you really believe that? It can be if we have an unhealthy amount in a, in, a, in a bad area. So there's different types of fat in your body, right? I mean, one is that we have regular subcutaneous fat right under our skin. That's the type in our thighs and our buttocks and our arms. It's a safer deposit of fat. If you're going to get fat, that's the place to accumulate it. But there's visceral fat, and that's the fat underneath the stomach wall, and it's nestled against internal organs. If that fat gets crowded, it becomes inflamed, and that is the type of fat that is linked to diabetes and heart disease. And you can be fit but fat. In fact, I give the story of sumo wrestlers in The Secret Life of Fat who are fit but fat. So amazingly, as obese as they are, most of their fat is stored in their subcutaneous layer, not in their visceral area, and it keeps them healthy. That means that if you pat them on the tummy, you would feel that they have a soft kind of fat belly as opposed to someone who has visceral fat where you might pat them on the tummy and their muscles would be what you feel because their fat is beneath their muscles closer to their body organs. That's right. I mean, a way to test for, for visceral fat quickly is lie on the floor flat. And if your stomach flattens, uh, that's probably subcutaneous fat. But if you have that big paunch still, that roundness, it's probably under your stomach wall. And that's visceral fat. So yes, it, it, there's a difference. Just lie on the floor and a pooched out tummy is the dangerous kind. Yeah, that's a quick test you can do right at home. Now, you also in your book talk about the counter side of this. You have sumo wrestlers who can be very healthy even though they're fat. And then you have ballerinas who are sometimes so thin that their bones are in trouble and they don't even have periods. Right. So for women in particular, fat's really important. You know, it's linked to our reproductive cycle directly. So this came out of work done by Rose Frisch uh, at Harvard, and it was actually very interesting. She was doing this, you know, earlier uh, in the 1900s or in the mid 1900s, and uh, she was really ridiculed for this. It wasn't taken very seriously at all. But what she noticed is that in some neighborhoods of Pakistan, girls were getting their periods earlier. It was linked to fat. It wasn't linked to age. It wasn't linked to height. It was really just linked to their fat levels. And she found that within three pounds, women can turn on and off their periods. So if you get below, say, 17%, you know, body fat, um, you actually won't start menstruation. So some of these ballerinas who are young, you know, or, or even athletes who start fairly young, without sufficient body fat, they don't initiate puberty. And once they start puberty, if they, they do their sports after um, initiating their, their menstrual cycles, too low of body fat will stop the menstrual cycle. It'll interfere with it. You know, there's women who can't conceive because they've just lost too much fat. And here we are in this society where since thinness is made a high priority, this can be a real danger that women face is really not having enough body fat. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly in Southern California, when I talk to doctors here, this is one thing they see. It's not uncommon. There's women with eating disorders. And the first thing I try to do is get them to gain some weight. If they can't, you know, of course, they can inject them with the appropriate hormones later. But that's what really fat is. Fat's actually a source of estrogen for women. Um, It's not just sitting there as excess calories. It actually produces hormones. And leptin is one that has vast effects on our body. We'll get to leptin in a little bit. But before we do that, I found your unusual examples really fascinating of the rare genetic disorders that lead someone to be way too skinny but with fat circulating in their in their bloodstream in a very dangerous way are people being very obese where no matter what they eat they don't have energy it goes right into fat and they can't stop eating those are incredibly rare genetic disorders which fortunately seem to be treatable with modern pharmaceutical interventions. You know, those patients and the experiments, you know, done, they were really the first to illustrate how important fat is and that fat's not just excess calories. People who have a a condition called lipid dystrophy, their fat tissue actually atrophies. They can't make fat tissue anymore. They can't hold on to it. And so when they eat, if they have any excess at all, it has nowhere to go, any of that excess, because without fat, there's nowhere to store it. And those nutrients instead will start depositing in heart and liver, other places it shouldn't be. And it really affects their health negatively. They're basically dying of not having a good place to put the fat energy that their body's making. That's right. The person I talked about, her name is Christina, accumulated in these kind of blisters underneath their skin. And it even got hard for her to eat and move around. It was very painful. Um, You know, another thing when you don't have fat, and I know we're going to get to leptin, is that you don't have leptin because fat makes leptin, and leptin controls appetite. So although Christina had no fat, she had lipid dystrophy, her appetite was enormous because leptin usually will satiate an appetite, it'll make us overall satiated. And so she was overeating but losing weight massively, and all of that excess had no place to go for her. So when she finally got treated her ap- with leptin, her appetite diminished. She was able to get her, her health conditions like diabetes under control and live a much more normal life than she would have otherwise. It's so good that there was a real medical intervention to help her very unusual genetic and physiological condition. And the same way with the other extreme, children who were born constantly hungry, who never made enough leptin. Yeah, so there's a defect that those children have. And I give the story of Layla, who was an eight-year-old girl, and she grew up, she just could not stop eating. From the time she was really a baby, she couldn't get enough food. And it wasn't a normal appetite. You know, she would actually break into a locked freezer and eat raw frozen fish. Like, it was that kind of urge to eat. It was just unstoppable. And, you know, she got blamed for it. Her parents got blamed. And ultimately, what they found out is that she has a genetic defect. So her fat was defective, actually. It wasn't making this hormone called leptin. That's one thing to really keep in mind. Fat's not just fat. It's actually an organ, an endocrine organ that produces hormones our body depends on. It not only is producing hormones, but it's responding to other hormones that are sending signals to it and throughout the body. It plays both roles. It listens and it sends out signals. That's right. So it has constant interaction, you know, communication within our body. Layla's fat wasn't making leptin. And normally leptin will be made by fat, go into your bloodstream, travel to your brain, and it sends a satiation signal to your brain saying, you know, we're we're okay now. We have enough fat. (laughs) You know, we can stop. Um, Hers didn't do that. Her, Her fat did not make it. So her body thought she had no fat, even though she had a lot of it. The cure for her came out of this study of mice. The OBOB mice. That's right. And and they finally figured out that there is, you know, this this hormone made by fat. And they were finally able to get some to her, some leptin, because her body wasn't making it. And when they injected that into her, within days, her appetite subsided dramatically. 
That was another happy story. Yeah, she's doing fine now. And I'm sure that our listeners are wondering whether this means could they do something like this themselves? We'll get to that in a little bit. But before we talk about how the leptin hormone is affected by people in the modern American world and the Western diet, let's talk about viruses and bacterial infections, because that's also a fascinating area that is a little surprising. Yeah, sure. So it's always shocking to people to hear that viruses might have a role in fat. But, you know, viruses and fat have been known about from animals for some time. So canine distemper virus causes fatness in mice. Rouse-associated uh, virus causes it in chickens. But there, there is a virus called 8036, which is linked to fatness in humans. And I tell the story, a very interesting story of a scientist named Nikhil Durander, who, who more or less discovered this. Nikhil had actually seen some of this in India, where he was from. There was a virus called SMAM1 that was causing uh, death of chickens, so it was hurting the poultry industry. But when they did uh, necropsy on these, these chickens, they were actually gaining weight. They had more abdominal fat, which he thought was very weird, because usually with the virus, you lose weight, you don't gain. He did a test in people to see who's had the virus and found that SMAM1 was also linked to fatness in, in humans. People who'd had it had a much higher rate of obesity. So he left everything behind and came to the U.S. and, uh, you know, decided to work on this. And then he, he couldn't transport the SMAM1 virus over. He had to find another virus in the U.S., and he did, and that was 8036. And the way it works is that when people are infected with this virus, it actually increases the glucose, the sugar absorption into your cells. It increases the number of fat molecules that are made and increases the number of fat cells also. So your fat cells are getting bigger and you're getting more of them. Um, you don't have to be obese. I just want to make that clear. Like even if you have this, you just have to work harder. And I do give an example of a man named Randy who works very, who has the virus, but he works very hard at staying thin. I found myself when I read about that thinking, why would a virus want our bodies to make more fat? <laughs> Is the reaction of our bodies to bring more glucose into cells and turn more of it into fat because the virus wants us to do that or the bacteria does or is it because our cells under stress are desperately trying to bring in enough energy to fight the virus? Yeah, I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to that. You know, I wonder about that because it sounded like what happens with the virus is that in response, the body's bringing more glucose into the cell and desperately trying to use the glucose to make energy for fighting and some of the energy becomes very dirty in how it's metabolized. It's not a clean metabolic pathway. What we know about drugs, such as the Avandia scandals that happened in the 2000s, that if a cell is forced to have too much energy coming in, it tends to take excess energy and turn it into fat more often than it would normally. That's interesting. I mean, I think actually they're now looking at this for some applications in diabetes because, as you know, diabetics aren't as sensitive to insulin. And, uh, you know, there might actually be a role for, for viruses now in actually helping people internalize glucose. With Avandia, that was one of the ways that it works is it kind of forces cells to take in extra sugars. But as a result, it tends to turn uh, muscle cells into somewhat of a fat cell. It tends to do the same thing as the heart. It's one reason why Avandia was considered a drug that has a strong likelihood of increasing the risk of heart disease in people that are susceptible that way. It makes me wonder whether the cells, when they're stressed like that, not taking in energy as cleanly, if that's a reason that they might be making more fat out of the sugar that they're taking in. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I haven't read about that in the research. I'm not sure if even researchers know exactly why it's happening. Yeah, although we do know that it happens that when a body is stressed by a virus or a bacteria, in some cases, that means 
that person will have less of the energy that they have inside of them used for work and more of the energy that just goes into fat storage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yet none of these examples is quite on target with what's happening with people today. Today, what we have isn't people with rare genetic disorders or people who the majority of them are infected by a virus we don't think necessarily. But instead, the United States in particular is one of the countries that has a fairly serious problem with chronic health problems. And one symptom of that may be that people are gaining more weight than they would ever have gained in past generations. And leptin may be part of that. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think, a whole number of things going on. One is that we certainly eat more processed food than ever. We have a lot of hidden calories and a lot of carbohydrates in there, which, you know, in, they provoke insulin and insulin will then make us internalize it and then convert it to fat. So, I mean, that's certainly part of it. And I write about the Pima Indians who, they settled in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, they endured famines, right? They endured drought and famines in, in their history. And they more or less evolved this genotype that's considered a thrifty genotype. So they're very efficient at using energy and they store fat more readily. And now when they encountered these Western settlers coming through for the gold rush, they started getting exposed to Western foods. So, you know, a little bit more carb. They, they, didn't, they, they used to farm and hunt and they were pretty active. But as they took on more of a Western lifestyle, which is working in factories, you know, military and eating Western foods, they put on excess weight, more than the Caucasians around them at the time. Three times more on was their, their obesity rate. It was actually a triple. It's their interaction of their genotype with the environment. It doesn't produce the same results as, say, a Caucasian nearby eating the same foods, living the same life who manages to stay thin. And the other thing to think about is that, you know, once we gain weight, it's very hard to take off. Um, and so when people lose fat, they actually lose some leptin. And that then increases their appetite and it also lowers metabolism. That's the research of Rudy Libel out of Columbia University. But let's reel back now to the Pima Indians. You know, there's a lot of researchers and scientists who say the Pima Indians now are doomed. Their reservation has more kidney dialysis centers per person than most of the rest of the United States. There's a lot of chronic conditions that come from them having this response to the modern Western diet that they're eating. And yet there's an interesting paradox because the Pima Indians who get diabetes and don't get as fat die sooner of the complications like failed kidneys and other diabetic side effects than the Pima Indians who keep getting fatter. That is so interesting. There's actually something called the obesity paradox, and I write about this in The Secret Life of Fat. But so for all these diseases fat is thought to cause, like heart disease and diabetes, they find that, you know, when it actually becomes traumatic, like there's a heart attack or you're actually quite sick from your diabetes, people who have who are considered overweight actually do better than people who are normal or underweight. When you look at statistics broadly, a lot of people when they die are pretty skinny because if they die of cancer or other wasting diseases, they can be very, very underweight. And so that tends to skew the statistics. But in terms of the Pima and their obesity, one theory has been that the fat ends up being a safe place to store energy that the body's not able to use otherwise. And so instead of causing damage in the system by the sugars just kind of going around and causing more damage in the, and the organs responding to that, at least they can be stored in the fat. Yeah, and there's a, a gene actually called IRS-1, and I write about this in the book too, which is uh, it actually makes people fatter but healthier, and it's along the lines of what you just said. So you know, they, they had men who were thinner but a little bit more visceral fat, 
but they were less healthy. They had more circulating triglycerides and cholesterol and, and sugars. But the men who had a certain variant of the IRS-1, they had cleaner blood, but they had higher subcutaneous fat. It was actually keeping them healthy. Their fat was protective. In that case, fat isn't being the enemy. It's being the faithful friend that's standing by to take something that's metabolically overheated in the body and storing it away so that it doesn't cause as much damage. And it's not too unlike the sumo wrestlers. When if it's in a safe place, you know, you're, and you're keeping your blood clean, and, and like women too, we, we do this more readily than men. It's, it's a safer thing to have. Okay, so now let's talk about appetite and leptin. The reason I want to talk about it is because Rudy Libel has definitely influenced nutrition policy throughout the United States by saying that basically once somebody has raised their appetite level to a certain point and their leptin hormone has gotten to a certain point and their body's accustomed to that, if they lose weight, their body is constantly going to be haunted by wanting to get that leptin level back up, meaning the fat level back up. And so they're doomed to be hungry the rest of their life, which is just a, that's just hell. <laughs> okay, so yeah, his research, it's interesting. So yeah, so because fat produces leptin, and leptin keeps us overall satiated and keeps our metabolism quite strong, when we lose fat, we lose some leptin. And so our appetites are much higher, our metabolism is lower. And what he finds is so, you know, for example, I'm just going to throw out some weights here, but so if someone's at 150 pounds naturally versus someone who was at 170 pounds, lost 20 pounds to get to 150 pounds, the person who's lost the 20 pounds to get to 150 has to eat about 22% fewer calories than the person who was at 150 pounds naturally. And that's because metabolism's a little bit lower once we've lost some fat. Don't you just hate that person who can keep eating the higher calories? <laughs> well, this, this is really, you know, this is saying that the importance of not gaining to begin with, right? And this is, you know, for younger generations, perhaps because we didn't have this research all the time, but it's, it's so important. It's so much easier to maintain a naturally low weight than it is to take it off and have to maintain it later. You know, they say it lasts for six years. You know, look, I did this. I, I gained weight. I had to take it off. Yeah, it was hard and I was hungry. I've got, it's gotten much easier over time. But it's not painful or, or hard anymore. Well, Sylvia, Tara, you're kind of refuting Rudy Libel, who kind of says that once you're in the situation, you're doomed. You did mention a lot of times that it's so hard to deal with hunger and that's a common problem somebody has if they lose weight. And yet there's a very different body of research, not among the researchers that you mentioned. You mentioned people like James Hill, who's here in Colorado, Colorado School of Medicine. Now, of course, he's been in a scandal recently for accepting a great deal of Coca-Cola money. Hmm, interesting. He accepted something like a million dollars or so of Coca-Cola money. And there's uneasiness about that now, given the research that indicates that Researchers can be biased by where they get their funding. He's one of the strong proponents of calories in, exercise to make up for the calories you eat. Mm -hmm. But there's another side of this research, which is the low-carbers and the Atkins people and the ketogenic people. I think that you mentioned the Obesity Society. Well, one of the past presidents was Eric Westman, and he's a huge proponent of ketogenic diets, meaning diets that are so high in fat and so low in carbohydrate that they produce a body a molecule called ketone that the body can use for energy. And he consistently reports that people who follow this program where they don't they keep their carbohydrates very low, they don't get hungry. 
They don't have that issue that Rudy Libel talks about so frequently. Yeah, so I've been on those diets. I went on Atkins for a while, and it does. It works. You know, I actually didn't feel satiated on that, and I, I'm guessing it's because I wasn't evoking any insulin at all, and insulin has uh, satiating effects. And, you know, the one problem I had on is it's very, very restrictive. And so when I, I write, you know, a diet really has to work for you, not just biologically, but psychologically and socially as well. And so, you know, if you travel a lot, you have a lot of guest meetings, it could be hard to stay on low carb. And I found it was it was just more restrictive than I wanted to be. There's a contrast between you and some of Eric Westman's patients where you mentioned that, you know, gosh, to give up that cookie now and then, that's pretty hard. And that <laughs> certainly represents how most people think about it. But I don't think Eric Westman's patients do that when they succeed. I think that they never eat the cookie again. That's right. You cannot eat a cookie. And that's what I learned on Atkins when I did it is if you even come off for, you know, a day or two, you're gaining weight and massive amounts of weight, not just a little bit. You can do low carb or you can do high carb. What people can't do is you can't have it all. You can't have high carb and high fat and because that's a recipe for getting heavy. What I do is, you know, it's a little different and it's not easy. So I do intermittent fasting and I have found this to be really good is that, you know, I can be a little looser on what I eat during the day, but then I stop eating around three or four o'clock and I don't eat again till the next day. And if you have really stubborn fat, which I have, it doesn't want to leave me. Then I found the intermittent fasting to be really successful. Yeah, I was I was curious about that just in your physiology and also thinking back to the Pima Indians. You know, Gary Taubes just came out with his new book, The Case Against Sugar, and he references the Pima Indians in a somewhat different way than you do. He mentions the fact that there are a lot of researchers who look at the Pima as canaries in the coal mine and that it's not just that their genetics is prone to be more affected by the American diet, but it's also that they are showing what happens to people over generations, too. They, they have had a more accelerated effect, but there is a possibility that if, say, you or I, when we had our kids, if we were eating a lot of foods that promote high insulin, then it's more likely that our kids would be more prone to being fat and be more hungry and need more carbs to satiate that or else eat, need way less carbs to get their appetite out of that realm. And that each generation where that happens, they would be in a much less resilient place in terms of choosing whether to eat fats or carbs and how much to eat. He's probably getting at epigenetics. Yes, epigenetics. You know, the methylation patterns of our DNA and how, how we imprint them in a lifetime, like your experience, you know, actually matters. And so what we do actually changes our biochemistry a little bit, and it can possibly be inherited. And it's actually very new. I was, I was going to write something about this, but it was getting you know, quite complicated and, and very scientific. But it's very interesting. And there's even studies, I think, one done where they have um, people exercise one leg and not the other. And they find the DNA patterns change on the one leg versus the other. To clarify, it's not changing the actual DNA. It's not changing that strand, the spiral strand. It's instead changing which of the pieces of DNA the body goes to to get the instructions about what to do next. It's like it goes to the library of DNA and the body chooses which books to pull out. And some of the things that people do in their lives can change which genes express themselves. And that expression can be something that influences what happens happens for the next generation. And that could, you know, getting back to your point, maybe that's affecting the, the amount of obesity, you know, in the world. There are no drugs that the normal person can take to change their fat storage like there were for the people who are the genetically unusual people. You can't just give more leptin to the normal population because the body resists excess leptin signals over time, and adding more leptin actually makes the condition of somebody who's obese in the typical way 
worse. If you're fairly normal, you know, you're obese, adding more leptin to you is, doesn't really work. Rudy Leibel, you know, he's done some great research, but there are researchers who counter what he says by saying there are ways to eat where the leptin issue stays calm. People don't get hungry if they can stand that kind of diet where they don't eat as many cookies. Well, Sylvia Tara, you've had to work harder than most of your friends to fit into your skinny jeans. <laughs> and are you fitting in your skinny jeans the way you want these days? Certainly not like I did in my 20s, but that's another wisdom that comes from all this research is that some fat's not a bad thing. And so our fat-obsessed, you know, thin-obsessed culture, um, it's, it's unnecessary to have six-pack abs. You can be perfectly healthy and, uh, you know, have some fat as long as it's in the right place. And so I, I'm thin enough for now uh, and, uh, you know, healthy enough for now, too. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. I'm Shelley Schlender for the KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. We've been talking with Sylvia Terra. She's the author of the new book, The Secret Life of Fat, The Science Behind the Body's Least Understood Organ and What It Means for You. And that's all for this edition of How on Earth. We've been, our executive producer is Joe Parker. Today's show was produced by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line, 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.